Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Unfortunately, I'm starting this one out on a sad note. For those of you who've been around on the West Coast scene for a while, you guys all knew who Esther Hollister was. Esther was e-girl racing. She was a vivacious, bubbly, flirty, uh, center of attention kind of gal that was uh, always around in the drag strip and racing pits, but for sure when she was around, everybody knew. I didn't know her personally. I, I definitely had seen her plenty of times around the uh, VW show circuit, and unfortunately, uh, earlier this week, she was missing, and then unfortunately, they found out uh, that she had passed away as far as details um, in regards to what happened uh, are a little bit unknown at this time, and it's unfortunately uh, prayers and shout-outs to her family, and uh, if you guys go on Facebook and uh, look up Esther Hollister, if you didn't know her, she was... Uh, she was definitely a part of the West Coast VW scene, and if you guys have an opportunity, for sure, go and find their legit uh, GoFundMe account and see what you could do to support the family. Our uh, prayers and thoughts go out to her family, and uh, for sure, she'll be missed. So, uh, and it, and it's kind of fitting because Esther was kind of a one one of a kind person for sure at the uh, at the car show. So um, it's always sad when something like this happens, and she definitely. Uh, she definitely was a person that was uh, seemed to be the life of the party all the time and brought a lot of smiles, a lot of happiness to people. So, And it's fitting that in this episode, she's a one-of-a-kind person that there's not another one of her. And in today's episode, this episode, uh, ironically, is about a one-of-a-kind vehicle. And so it's kind of fitting, and I wanted to dedicate this episode to... Uh, Esther's family to Eagle Racing and uh, my my thoughts and prayers with that family and my condolences and for sure if you guys like I said if you can go and find the GoFundMe account which I'll put a link to on letstalkdubs.com on our Facebook page uh, definitely if you guys get an opportunity to go and uh, contribute to the family but um, with that we'll get on with the podcast the Denenhauer Staus Coupe one of one that's known to exist today. Talk about rare cars. This is a super rare car. We talk about the history of these vehicles, the background, the rarity of the coupe, the story of this coupe, and the race to be the person that is able to be the next caretaker for this car. It's a great story. Lloyd Key, who we interview, is a great dude. I've met him, uh, I met him a few years back, and he's just a solid guy super laid back behind the scenes uh, car collector and just a humble dude who really appreciates vintage Volkswagens. And I remember when I first saw this car at the Kelly Park show, man, my jaw just dropped. And I just thought like, how cool is that to find a one of one vehicle? So this is the ultimate unicorn to date. Um, great story. Great guy. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy this. Some of you guys are into the more custom stuff. You'll still love the story because it's still the thrill of the hunt. And it's the chase that gets this vehicle, the uniqueness, the rarity, and the story behind it. So uh, without any further ado, guys, let's get into this week's podcast with Lloyd Key and the DNS Coupe on Let's Talk Dubs. A Volkswagen and a nice station wagon to have
So Lloyd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Bill. Happy to be on. Thanks for the invitation. We've been trying to connect for a little bit and, and you and I first met, shoot, it's got to be, I don't know, 2008, 2009. Uh, and, and I met you through my buddies up in uh, Northern California area, Tony and the DBK guys and stuff like that. And, and everybody was kind of around at that time and we got to chatting and, and you're a real good guy and, you know, just good personality, good person. You know, the VW community brings people together and, uh, you know, we met and then you've got a, you're a vintage guy and clearly I'm like a hardcore custom guy, but I think the, you know, the, the love for the VW hobby brings people together. And I got you on the show today to talk about some vintage stuff and, and, and some, specifically rare coach built stuff. But, uh, one of the things we always start at the podcast with is, is your VW story and how you got into Volkswagens. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Uh, it started at a very, very young age back in the mid sixties. My parents had, I believe a 65 or 66 VW and, um, my sister and I used to always fight over who would get to sit in the trunk compartment in the back. There's that little storage compartment in the back. And, yeah. um, and eventually my parents sold that car and then they ended up buying a 1970, uh, super beetle. And, uh, so that was our car, uh, for a long family car for a long time. And, uh, and then in 1980, when I went to college, I, my first car was a 1959 Beetle, uh, and I bought that. I grew up in Hawaii, and that rust can be very, can do a lot of damage in Hawaii. And the, 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 <laughs> uh, it's funny because I remember when I went to go see this 59 VW, you know, the, um, the floor pans had rusted out, so you could <laughs> see the, uh, you could see the, um, uh, the ground underneath the car was kind of funny. I was shocked and I'm thinking, geez, do I really want this car? And then, uh, then, uh, ended up selling it cause it just took too much work. It was starting to become a distraction from college. And, and, uh, so I just ended up selling it after a year. I just couldn't deal with all the work and the repairs and the distraction. So, uh, ended up using my parents 70 super beetle again. And, uh, believe it or not in 1985, when I got out of college, I started a little distribution company, distributing trading cards which i still do to, to till today and i use that 1970 beetle as my as my delivery vehicle if, if you can believe that I had really? to take up the front seat yeah i mean it just it had so much storage capacity you know delivering baseball cards and things like that to people's store in hawaii back in the day so vws have been in my blood almost all my life and so uh that's really where my passion started you know some people collect baseball cards some people collect stamps and for me my love has always been for vintage vws well you know and, and it's interesting that i see the parallel there because in your business you do you started out with trading cards and things like that and there is when it comes down to it it's a piece of cardboard it's a piece of cardstock but because of production numbers uh limited availability uh anomalies at factories things to that extent they they have different intrinsic values um, based on source of origin, the story behind that piece of postcard paper. You know what I mean? And it's and yep. it's really interesting how there's a similar parallel in the automotive industry that you know all the there could be a car that could be the worst thing ever made, but because it's one of 
you know, 15 that were made, it becomes really uh, sought after and, and, and the market's always changing, right? So there's always, you know, this is the rarest thing ever. And then everybody finds another layer of rare. And when this makes a perfect segue into vintage Volkswagens. And so you started out driving a 70 Super Beetle for your parents, 70 Super Beetle and, and reminiscing back to your youth when you, and, and, and usually the story for a lot of people is, is they have their passion, which gets bridled during career, marriage, kids, that kind of stuff. And then we finally get to a point in our life where we start to, we want to actually partake back in some things that we enjoy. And what's your first vintage car you get and and why do you think it is that you're into the vintage scene of the vws you know that's a good question i um for whatever reason uh you know i remember um when i was in high school there was a there was this guy who had a, a baby what they call a baby window which is an <laughs> oval window ragtop that's hawaii and top for I'm, oval windows. exactly exactly that, that gives it a little way where i was where i grew up and so really, that's that's where that came from, and I remember how beautiful that was. And then one day, I saw a split window in Hawaii driving a, a tan split window, and I'm I'm like, oh my god, what is that? And and then I found out later it was a split window. And so, I've always, for whatever reason, my my um, I've gravitated towards vintage and and not really into the custom. You know, my my feeling is everyone loves what they do. I'm not critical of what people love. They, if that's what they choose to have. Who am I to be a critic? Every you know, everyone has their passions, and and for me, I'm I'm happy to see people passionate about about their hobby, no matter what it is, stamps, cars, whatever. So anyway, that's where that that for me is where my love of vintage always started. And then you 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 got into this pursuit, right? It starts with like I've got to get a split window. They're super rare. I've got to find a split window, right? What's well, your... it started with the oval, and actually, my first when I finally started, you know, doing a little better in my in my career and um, in my business, the first car I bought was a '55 hardtop uh, Beetle from Mark Merrill, also a very, uh, uh, you know, he's probably one of the most well-known collectors, as you mentioned right. earlier. Yeah. And uh, he sold me a hardtop, and I remember it was uh, it was just I love that car. It, it drove, and and uh, you know, eventually, before too long, I sold it because I saw something else that. I wanted more, and um, so I ended up selling it, and I ended up getting that a, a split window Beetle, believe it or not, a 1952 split window Beetle. So uh, I, I used my experience in the trading card business of learning how to trade up. When you see something you like better or is more, worth more, then you you sell what you have, and you go and get something that you want more. And so we started off in this world, and, and I remember you know myself in the late 80s, you know, looking around the VW scene and, and you would see a 13 window bus and you'd be like, holy cow, it's a deluxe. I can't believe it. And, and it's funny because I've often noticed how in the eighties and nineties, it seemed like the oval window was super rare. And then the, the split window was uber rare. And, and then now obviously you go to, you'd go to the last classic and DBK had, you know, 15 splits on display all laid out and, you know, completely <laughs> You know, like the two thirds of the car club is split window Beatles. And now, you know, you're fast forwarding 2010. And it seems that these cars that are super rare, they've all just, I mean, I think the, the amount of restored split windows in the past 20 years has gone through the roof. And, you know, everybody's like, I've, I've got the older one, the older one. And then we start going into coach builds, right? So yep. if you can tell 
um, our listeners the the general premise behind coach built cars like where wh- what who was out there at the time and then what was what was the need for a coach built so basically the coach built cars came about because after the war there were a lot of craftsmen that were you know that were in germany that were making you know wartime vehicles or equipment and really they didn't have a lot to do after the war and so a lot of them got into uh you know, into making cars or working with people that, you know, established car makers. And some of them were very small. Some of them were three or four people, uh, or they would make coach built safe for other car companies or finish them for other car companies. And that's kind of how they started out. So there were many coach builders, much like, you know, back in the day when cars started in the U S how there was many different types of car brands and small coach builders as well. The same thing happened in Germany post-war. Uh, they, there was a need for for vehicles, and uh, there was a lot of craftsmen that could use their hands. And so they went out, they made wood bucks, or they would create these cars. And so uh, that's kind of really how it started out, really the coach-built scene, uh, from what I understand. So, uh, and, and I would almost think that, that one of the more common the, – the platform for coach-builts – that made it so simple was the beetle because of the, you know, you could just buy the rolling chassis and you basically have a car with no body and everybody already knows it's a reliable drivetrain. It's tried and true. Um, you know, being an air cooled motor, there's not all kinds of things to overcome with it. Now did V now VW at that time, they, they would actually sell raw chassis to coach builders. So there's a couple stories floating out there. I think, for Hebmuller, which is one of the most famous uh, coach builders of VW because they actually had a contract with VW and Carmen as well, mm-hmm. they could actually buy the chassis. My understanding was that some of these coach builders, if they didn't get them directly from VW, would have to buy a car that perhaps was in an accident. Then they would they would take off the, 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 uh, the body and they would reuse the chassis. So uh, that's really the... Um, some of the story that I heard, mm-hmm. uh, for my understanding of how they would get these chassis, but you're absolutely right about, uh, these coach builders using, uh, VW chassis as, uh, you know, to build their cars upon. And so everybody's, everyone's, everyone is familiar with Hebmuller and then Romech after that. And the first time in, in what we're talking about on this podcast today is the DNS, the, the Denenhauer and, Stoss, right? Stouss. Correct. Denenauer and Stouss. So the Denenauer and Stouss it w- was one of a really small coach builder. Um, and they, they had uh, like from 50, from 19, about 50 to 54 is while they were in production. And during that time, you know, I think it's like, if you look back in the early times of American automotive stuff, you had like Packard and you had Chrysler and you had all these individual guys that were building stuff and slowly but surely they were all bought up. And I think the interesting thing is it seemed like there was, it was much easier to get into producing all your stuff in America versus in Europe. It was a bunch of guys using VW chassis to build custom high-end cars on the VW chassis. And that's where the, the DNS organization kind of comes in because their car was really unique you know you had the the Hebmuller which was really a beetle a convertible beetle that was heavily body modified correct and then 
you had the Romech, which had a couple different models, right? You had the Lawrence and the B Scow, I think it was. Correct. That's that's correct. And and, and then and the difference was Romech was aluminum bodies and uh Hebmuller was still using steel bodies, is that correct? That's correct, because it was basically a beetle that they had, like you said, that they had uh, changed into a two-seater convertible. And then DNS comes about, and and there, the interesting thing about the about the DNS is it's the most three fifty six looking beetle that's been built. I'd say. Absolutely correct. Yeah, I think when you look at it, you can see enormous similarities, and uh, you know you you can't help but maybe infer uh, that some of the design was based on the 356. Uh, something that should be noted here is that uh, Dannenauer and Staus was also in Stuttgart, which is where um, Porsche is. Mm-hmm. So uh, you could see perhaps there was maybe a little creative, you know, adaptation, if you will. <laughs> I'm going to be kind. <laughs> Some borrowed influence. Exactly. You know, people had to make a living back then. And, and uh, you know, they said, well, if this if this sells and maybe this, you know, maybe something that looks similar to this would sell, too. <laughs> it, I'm not saying that's what they did, but, you know, there 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 could have been some, uh, you know. Well, and, and looking at the car, honestly, looking at the car from the front, it's 356 from the rear. It looks almost Heb Mueller. From certain, yeah. from certain angles, you know, because it's got the long rear sloped hood. And the first time I, the first time I'd seen one was in the book, classic Volkswagens. I think it's got a brown split on the cover and everybody probably has, it's a popular book and you know, it had rare coach built and it had Bill and Steve's type 34 in there. And then it had a DNS, a DNS. And, and for most everybody's knowledge, the DNS was a convertible, I'm, it's, it's a, I guess it's a four seater, but it's really a two seat. I mean, it's it's four seat if you're an amputee in the back. I mean, there's, there's like there's no <laughs> yeah, leg you'd room. Have to be, yeah, very difficult to fit four. You can, but it's you know you've got your knees in your chest if you're a fairly large, even just a normal person. Yeah, and so for years, so let's talk about the 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 DNS DNS history for a minute, right? Sure. So. Um, they start post-war because obviously it's a father and son company. It's actually a father and son-in-law company. Oh wow! Believe so it or not, son-in-law. Yeah. Right, right. And so they go into building building these bodies, building them on. And now these are all steel cars, correct? Correct, all steel. Yep. And they were built made over. Go ahead. Right, made over wood. Yeah, made over wood bucks. Now the interesting thing about the wood bucks, and I know when when we were looking at your car. With these cars being coach built and hand built cars, there's variances from every car, and even on the same car, from like the left fender to the right fender, there's some. There, there, you can clearly tell they're not production vehicles. Oh, absolutely! I believe the left fender sits about an inch higher, and I believe one door is actually three quarters of an inch longer. So, um, yeah, they, it wasn't an exact science. They got their hammer out. They, they, you know, they made it over wood bucks, which probably weren't that accurately built as well. And they started to go at it and, you know, they shimmed it as they needed to. They, they, you know, bent it as they needed to, they cut as they needed to, to make it work. Yeah. And, and then the early cars were like the early 356s and stuff They, you know, the bent window coupes and stuff, the early cars had split front windshields, right? That's correct. Yeah, it, it went all the way up. I believe it. Uh, they started in '51 and ended probably late '52. There's an early '53, I believe, but it um, 
it may have been redone by Dan. It may have been a, a single windshield that was redone by DNS because the owner, my understanding was wanted a split window. And now a lot of times we think that they had a split front. Now was the purpose for the split front windshield just, you know, I, I used to think it was because they couldn't curve glass back then. You know what I mean? But we clearly know that's not the case, but maybe being a coach builder, it was more difficult sometimes to find sources for curved glass. I, I don't know what, what would differentiate why there was a split window versus, or was it just a design choice available? You know, it's, it's hard to say. I think, um, you know, back then Porsche also had a split window and, and that could have been the influence. And also when you think about it back then, it was probably easier to get two flat pieces of glass. than, like you said, to find curved glass. Right. Um, and, uh, and that could be the reason there's, uh, you know, things were still developing back then. And, uh, I think if, again, these people were just really getting chassis and building cars to order because you had order, you know, you, you, you had to order them through VW dealership. So, uh, a lot of times they would make to order and uh, sometimes the simplest way to make them, you know, to get them out the door so they could, uh, you know, they could keep the shop alive was probably what they did. And with these cars, with the way they were, they were with the way that they were built, these are obviously small companies that are building the bodies and most of the other ancillary pieces, the door handles, taillights, bumpers, things like that, that would take another level of specialty manufacturing. They would just borrow typically off of other cars. Yeah. They basically went to the, uh, you know, the parts store and whatever was available on the shelf at that time when they were making the car for things like turn signals and brake lights and headlights basically were, were right off the shelf. I mean, there's no difference between that and say some of the Porsche things or that were there at the time. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's just whatever was in VW things, it, you know, they had beehive tail lights in certain cases. Uh, so it was, it was just, um, just off the shelf. And so <clears throat> with that being said, could you find two cars same year, few months production difference and they've got different one's got a different steering wheel than the other one one has different taillights and there's no really rhyme or reason it was more out of like okay we're going to finish this other car they're out of these taillights we'll use these i mean there wasn't really like it, it, i don't think there's a resource you can go to that that can define every choice or was it all options uh, you know, it's hard to know to go back in that period, but speaking to the granddaughter of the founder, which is also the daughter of the founder, right? Because they were yeah. father-in-law and, and father and son-in-law. Uh, she remembers that it would just be whatever they could get. And um, unless somebody specifically wanted something, then they would just get something off the shelf and whatever the parts store had, they would, they would do it. But yes, you could have a car that was built at the same time, you know, similar to another car a month apart. And, you know, the difference would be whatever parts they had at that time. And a lot of times they would, even the steering wheel, they would perhaps even just, if it was a car that got to an accident, they would take that steering wheel and reuse it for the Dan and our. So, I mean, these, these guys were green before being green was cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a matter of survival, right? And they were, you know, back in those days, you, you, you reused, repurposed and, uh, you know, you're right. It's, it's things that we're doing nowadays, but you're right. That's what they did. And, and maybe the, the, the reason behind it was they're trying to be successful, competing in a big market, trying to sell a bespoke, uh, vehicle 
you know, marketed more toward the refined buyer that, that doesn't want, you know, the common man Volkswagen, but sure does appreciate the reliability, but would not want something maybe a little sportier looking or with a little more style. Now the body designers on this car, um, were, were more into aerodynamics. Is that correct? You know, it's hard to say. I think it definitely was a more sportier model. I think definitely by, you know, the early fifties, you know, they were able to offer a more expensive type of coach built car and people could afford it. I mean, this was a fairly expensive car and I don't remember, I do have an original brochure, but I don't, I don't remember what the cost was, but it definitely was more expensive than a VW. So, you know, you, you had to have the ability to, to have money to purchase uh, uh, these cars uh, for them to have handmade it for you. Yeah. And, and so with that being said, you're, you're now, you know, Sam Walton's theory in business is if you sell to the rich, you'll live with the masses. And if you sell to the masses, you'll live with the rich, you know? And so maybe the, uh, their, their purpose in, in doing this, they thought that they could sell to some high line people and then, you know, make a ton of money. But in reality, that's a, that's a tough road to hoe. And, uh, and by building such selective vehicles that, that could price them out of the market, or maybe they're hoping to get, you know, brand recognition and hoping for the company to take off. Unfortunately, their total production numbers are, are somewhere between what, eight, like 80 and a hundred. Is that correct? That's correct. We, we don't really fully know the real numbers, but, um, we, if you do some, uh, extrapolation from, uh, maybe other coach builders like V scow or, uh, say, uh, you know, the, um, Mueller generally about 20% of them survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's generally the number. And that's, if you were to do that, then, uh, you would probably say there's probably, you know, anywhere from 80 to a hundred, uh, Dan and our Stouse, uh, cars of that period made because, uh, on the registry, we believe there's 19 or 20 that exist today. And then, you know, and interestingly enough, in the case of your car, these things just sometimes just pop up and no one, they, you know, no one's known about them. And, and we're going to get into your car in a minute because your car is a story that I was just blown away by because these, these cars really, for the most part, we got to remember they're super limited in production and then for them to somehow like your car end up in the United States, you know, when, when those cars are built in Germany and there's a lot of people from all over the world in Germany buying cars and shipping them elsewhere, I mean, there could be more cars around, but you know, based on how they're stored, where they're kept, where they're sent to is going to, is going to change survival. So, you know, you never know what could be around the corner, but with your car, for example, um, and I, and, and, before we jump into your car, I just want to finish up some so a little bit a little bit more um, a little bit more about the DNS, just to kind of give our listeners an idea of of the clientele that's buying the DNS and the you know the big difference I think with with the DNS is the aerodynamic shape of the body makes it a little bit faster. But what kind of what options could you get when you ordered the car in regards to drivetrain? Was it just Volkswagen or were there other options? There were other options as well and uh, that's that's interesting that you would ask that question because my I have two DNSs, a coupe and a convertible and the coupe came with a uh, Porsche drivetrain. So it had 
it had a Porsche engine, it had A brakes, um, it had 16 inch slotted uh, wheels. Um, so you could you could order it. And also, uh, my coupe has a reinforced uh, front beam uh, that's has not been seen on other DNSs. So we we think that was uh, so that it could absorb you know that faster speed with the with the bigger Porsche engine. And so. Did, did which came first for you, your coupe or convertible? Actually, the convertible came first. Now, now, what's the story on your convertible? What what is the story? What year is it? And and where did you where did you pick it up from? Where did it come from? So it's a it's a 1953 uh, convertible. Uh, so um, and actually, I bought it from a person named Peter Freed, who's a well known uh, vintage. Uh, parts and car dealer in uh in germany and um he had it for sale in hessisch oldendorf in 2009 i believe and uh so i purchased it from him uh yeah we we went to see it i went with a person named henry marchena who's also somebody you know very well yes uh, from your from your club the dbk club and uh so he and i were in hessisch together and uh we happened to stumble upon Peter and he had an ad for sale, Dan and our and Staus for sale. And we couldn't believe it. And we're like, wow. Okay. So immediately we, uh, we asked Peter, we said, Hey, uh, we're interested. Um, when can we see the car? And he said, um, you know, meet me at my place, uh, you know, after the show the next day. So Henry and I went out to see the car. And, um, like you said, depending on how it was capped or, uh, you know, the weathering and and these cars were not made to last because the way they made it collected a lot of road dirt and you know debris and rain and salt and all that stuff and so you know this car the bottom six inches was was gone and it was in terrible shape and uh and then it had been in an accident that the right front fender was just really you know damaged they tried to fix it and salvage it but uh but they didn't but it was all there i mean the car outside there was no uh everything was there except for the original engine so uh you know when we saw it we were surprised at how much of the original car was still the original rear fenders original uh you know t air cleaner mm-hmm. that was just adapted for that that angle of the hood so uh so at the time there were none for sale i'd been pursuing a couple others and they just uh, for whatever reason i couldn't make a deal to, to acquire them so you know uh and as you know, Henry has his own uh, his own shop and right. does quality, quality. I mean, I'd have to say best in industry restorations. And uh, you know, when I when when Henry saw it, even he was surprised at the condition. I mean, in terms of how bad it was, he was just like, "Whoa, what?" <laughs> you know. So, it, it, and when when a guy like that gets shocked, you go, "Wait a minute, maybe this is a mistake. I shouldn't I shouldn't acquire this car." And uh, but you know. Uh, they're so rare and I realized the rarity and, and I, and at that moment I just said, you know, let's, I, I bought it. And so, so that brings up a good question. Which would you rather buy? You'd rather find a nice body in great shape, completely stripped or a rotted complete car. Well, you know, I would say, you know, that the, 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 there's, the, there's differences these days. I mean, today, the ability for people to build cars is so much better than it was when I, when we found that car, you know, 13 years ago. Right. right? I mean, and so today you have these people that know how to work the English wheel. I mean, it's just, I mean, especially with the popularity of 
all these shows that are on TV now of how they can remake cars. And, you know, you have these, you know, you have these people that really can bend metal. Just they're phenomenal. They're just artists. I mean, you just, that's the best way you could describe them because the normal man could not, but so today it's a different story. You, you, you get when it's so rare, you just have to buy it because you kind of wait for the, you know, the, um, the craftsmanship to catch up and it, and it did. But it was just it's kind of one of those things where, of course, you'd love to find them where you don't have to do any work <laughs> right. and the work's already been done. But the reality was at the time, you kind of when it's that rare, you kind of you kind of have to just do it. You know, yeah. you, you just you bite the bullet and and you say, look, if I'm a, if I'm a VW collector and coach builds is what I love and this is what it is, then you buy it. Um, you know, Mark Merrill bought one as well, r- roughly the same time. And so. Uh, the, you know, he and I restored our cars together. And mine is still not finished. Mark's is finished, and it's not finished be- more because of me. I can't, couldn't make certain decisions on on aesthetics, but uh, or it would have been done three years ago. So yeah. um, that's that's a different story for another, perhaps <laughs> another podcast, or maybe never. But uh, but at any rate, yeah, uh, that's that's kind of how I came ac- across that car, and uh, you know, been been very fortunate to have that car. Now I'm. I'm almost. I would say we're at the ninety. I would say we're at the ninety-five percent mark now. We just need to go to the last five percent, finish the car. And when you pick up a car like that, I mean, it's really with 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 DNS. There's not a there's not a lot of documented history about the early days. Correct. In other words, chassis numbers, car color. I mean, Heb Mueller. There's a lot, and and don't get me wrong. You know. Uh, Claus Messing has done tons of work on the, you know, getting a lot of the Heb Mueller information, and and the, there, there's a team there in Germany just working on that stuff. But it seemed like Heb Mueller was way better at like a like a more professional shop that kept a lot a lot better records than like DNS. And so when you get that car, if you can't, how do you determine what the original paint color was, and which direction do you go when you're out of loss i mean do you do you have are there factory brochures available that you can look at or anything like that unfortunately the factory brochure doesn't tell you i mean you can you can kind of custom order your color but you you know you have to do your own kind of forensic investigation in terms of you know maybe you got to scrape the paint off because there may be two or three coats on there you have to look in the engine compartment or in the trunk area and you look underneath to see if there's original uh paint and and the primer that was used back then can sometimes fool you deceive you into thinking maybe it was a a gray car but it it, you know a lot of times it'll be there or for me the dash had glue residue left so did it have a pad on there that they had put after the fact and so there's a lot of these little things that you have to kind of look for clues you just have to be a detective and kind of use some deduction ultimately end of the day sometimes these cars have been restored or been stripped so bad that you, you really, you never know. And it's kind of your choice. And like you said, Dan and Aaron Staus did not keep good records. One interesting thing we did find with the Dan and Aaron Staus, they did have numbers for whatever reason stamped in certain places on the car, like on the uh, glove compartment door or the, uh, or underneath the radio faceplate, but it wasn't consistent. You, you couldn't know what number went, what, what rhyme or reason they were for these numbers, but there are numbers stamped on the, on certain places, at least on the two cars I have, they're stamped. And there's no correlation between the two. But real quick, because you, you almost didn't answer my question. So would you rather buy a complete car that's rusty or a, a solid body with no parts? In the case of the Dannenauer, I would prefer to buy 
I would prefer to buy the the complete car, even if it's rusty. Because, because then, it, part, because they're they're so unique, you don't have to try to you don't you don't know. It's more validation of what's correct for the vehicle. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. I I think when uh, just to give you a backstory on that, Mark Merrill's car, as I mentioned, he bought his DNS at the same time I bought mine, and his was had been you know cobbled together perhaps even with two another dns hmm. and so a lot of the original things weren't there they actually had to use mine as a template to build theirs because a lot of the original things that they needed to know about the car was gone so that's why i'd rather much start with a much more original car that may be a basket case than one that someone's already done all the metal work. you don't know what happened you don't know what was there yeah, it's, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's painstaking, it's exciting, and it's not cheap. Just like anybody knows that restores cars, I think anybody that is, you know, in, a, in the uh, car restoration hobby realizes that no matter what level you are, whether you're restoring a 73 Beetle or, you know, a, a coach-built car, you, you enter this exclusive group of the More Money Than Brains Club because, <laughs> like you said... The best value is to see if you can find one complete done and pick it up and this way save yourself the time, energy, and all that stuff. But I think I think it's the uniqueness of of like the 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 hands-on archaeology per se of the of, of the individuals like putting pieces of history back together. You know? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's it's a lot of fun, but like you said, restoring is a process. It, uh, it doesn't it, it you can there's kind of almost, I don't want to say there's no budget, but you know, in a sense of, you know, you, you can't go in there going, God, I've only got X amount of dollars just because it's, it's, and it's a, it's a long process. It's not, it's a labor of love. It's, it's one of those things that you do it because it's your hobby and you love it, not because you're going to make money on it. And um, so it's, it's, you got to be prepared mentally that it doesn't matter what you think it's going to cost. It always costs more. And now, so we talked about uh, a lot of the history of, dns in a nutshell i mean you can go on with the limited knowledge that you have you can go on for a long time but with with dns they were mostly known for building convertibles and your coupe is a is quite a rare vehicle uh tell me about the coupe so uh, the coupe we think there may be as many as five made um, there are pictures of five different ones made for a while there they we thought there was only two even the granddaughter only thought there was two, but uh, I think there was always pictures of three. Uh, and then we believe there's since then uh, pictures of two more have surfaced. And so we believe there's as many as five. Well, we, we know there's pictures of five different ones, which are different because you can look at the features of each one and they're all different. And then, but we don't think there's as many as 10. We just don't because the coupe was not, you know, convertibles were much more popular and the coupe was not as popular as the as the convertible. And so so to get into the story of the coupe, right? No one real I mean the the coupe was like the unicorn. There was photographs of it, no one's ever seen one. Nothing's ever been around and as far as we know, like your last car, it had to come from it had to come from Germany. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. In fact, you know, everyone had said that they don't, I mean, even a, a good friend of mine who had kind of really helped me a lot in, in, uh, in shaping my, my views on collecting 
uh, vintage VWs and, and coach builds. He himself has said none exist. They've all been crushed. You know, they'll, no, none will surface. And it was surprising to hear him say that because uh, he would be the last person I would think would say that. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, to, to his surprise, he, he, uh, he, you know, to his, yeah, he, he was surprised when this thing surfaced. But yes, it, I always say you never rule them out. They're they, they, they're in somebody's barn somewhere, possibly. And as you know, there's the bar finds every every day. And that and and that's where we enter the story of the DNS coupe, which is the only one that we know of that exists today. Tomorrow could be different, but today it's the only one we know of to exist. And that car happened to be located here in the United States. Correct. Yeah, it was actually found in Canby, Oregon. So right, uh, right outside of Portland, about uh, within about half an hour drive. And I remember, so I remember seeing it. Uh, I think the what I'm not sure if it was the first time you debuted it, but was it Kelly Park? And that's cor- that's correct. Yeah, and, and I saw the car, and I was just like, "This thing's so crazy! Like it's so funky and so different, but so cool." And it was like, and and that, and, and I remember to give our listeners a little bit of backstory. When news of this came out in uh, what was it, 2010? When, Correct. When, when the car was found. So all of a sudden it's like, boom, coupe found in Oregon. Like, and then there was like this race and, 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 and it was all of a sudden all these things on the internet were like, oh man, we got to keep it in the U S we got to keep it in the U S let's hope somebody from the U S you know, gets this car and acquires it. And you were the, the lucky buyer. How did, so tell me the story of how you get notified of this car and its availability. God, it's really a it's really a tale of two stories. Um, the earlier story is I'm contacted. I'm going to not mention any names, but I was contacted by a fairly well known, uh, again, restorer and um, of vintage VWs and coach builds, and he had gotten contacted by the by the grand by the father of the girlfriend of the grandson. If 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 I remember it correctly, he was helping them with the research on this. And he actually contacted this this person at first, and they were, and so that person contacted me and several other potential buyers and provided early pictures. And when we saw it, I, I don't know what the reaction of the other people were, but when I saw it, I was like, "Wow, it really does exist." And uh, and and so there was a lot of negotiation for months with that first, what was the what I would consider say the first person that got contacted on that and so unbeknownst to me they had also reached out to patrick baptist who was the um who had kept the registry for the dns because they thought he would be a good resource and he contacted me about it and um so there were two parties that were kind of vying for the ability to buy and perhaps represent the sellers in selling this DNS coupe. Mm-hmm. So they both notified me. They both didn't know because, uh, you know, <laughs> I believe in keeping the utmost confidentiality. There are times when you want to play people off against each other, right? but there are times when you just go, you know, you're going to have to keep this kind of confidential because, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those situations. You just, you don't know what people know if they talk about each other, or th- then that's one thing. But the reality was, you know, it was, um, it was, uh, uh, you just never know. So all along, based on the first group who had gotten contacted by the owners, I thought I was a front runner to purchase it. Then a second person, Patrick, appears 
I wouldn't say out of nowhere, but just kind of comes and he says, Hey Lloyd, I've heard of, you know, I've been contacted by the owners. They want to sell. I've been asked to, you know, help advise on this. And so then, then Patrick's the second party that gets involved. He's like, Lloyd, what do you think? And so all of a sudden it's, it's multiple, you know, a couple of people that are now looking at to, to, yeah, represent the car. <laughs> right. Two people. I have the buyer. No, I have yeah. the buyer. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, um, ultimately I wasn't sure who was at that time, you don't really know who represents the buyer because in a way they both do, but maybe they, neither of them do. You just don't know. So for me, I was like, at that point, I went to each of them and I said, look, whatever it takes to get the car, let me know. I mean, maybe I'll run out of funds and I can't afford it. But, you know, um, if, if there's really only two people representing the car, the best thing I can say is, look, I'm very interested. Let me know, you know, where you're at on the car, if you get it, or if they are going to put a bidding process, let me know when and I'll be available at that time and, and we'll do it. So um, Patrick had flown out from the Patrick's from the Netherlands mm-hmm. and uh, he's also uh, he also keeps the Romesh registry for uh, for the Lawrence. Mm-hmm. He's got five Lawrence's of his own, Jeez. which is which is a different story. He loves Gia's, too. That's a different story. But he um, he flew out from the Netherlands and met with the the uh, the owners of the car and he, uh, they contacted seven uh people around the world to to solicit offers on the car and so uh and i was one of the seven i'm not going to mention the names of the other six uh, sure. they're, they're they're well known you know several of them bill <laughs> I, do. I won't men- yeah i won't mention the names but anyway um and it happened that uh, they they said on this day we will take offers and and uh at this point the owners will make a decision as to who will own the car and so we went through several rounds of bidding but with both parties, believe it or not. And, uh, and, 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 uh, the, uh, Patrick called me. The first party said they've, they've made a decision. We are not going to be representing them anymore. So Patrick was the lone person that would represent them in the bidding. And, uh, Patrick, uh, said that they're going to make a decision. Give me your last and best final offer. They're going to make a decision and that's it. They they don't have the energy. They don't want to keep going round and round and round. They were older retired couple. They were Mm -hmm. teachers. They're fantastic. By the way, they're, and that's another story. They are two of the most fantastic people I've ever met. I mean, they are just fantastic people raised five kids. All of them are very uh, with good values. I mean, they're just, they're just great people anyway. So, uh, they said we'll, we'll make a decision. So I didn't hear from Patrick. It went it went dead silent, and um, I contacted the first uh, person who was involved, and I said, "Look, is there any way you can call them to find out?" Because I was waiting and waiting and waiting. In fact, I remember sitting outside this restaurant, just couldn't eat, couldn't think. I was so excited. I'm like, "Oh my god!" And I didn't hear for like a half an hour. And I'm like, "You know what? I think somebody outbid me. I lost it." Then I get a call. Patrick calls me. Goes, "Lloyd, it's your car." I'm like, "Oh my god." The buyers want you to come up right now and buy it and pay them right now. I said, right now? He says, yes, you need to come up right now. And this was at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, or right about lunchtime. Like I said, it was about 1 o'clock. And immediately I called my wife and I said, hey, look, I got to go to Oregon like now. Like now. And so she's like, you're going to leave Oregon now? I said, yes, I'm coming home. I'm going to get some clothes. I'm going to get in our car and I'm going to get up there and get this, go to the bank, get the money and get up there and buy this car. So all, so I went to pick up a friend of mine, Ron Huff mm-hmm. and you may know Ron. I know Ron. And 
and another friend of mine, Rich Craig, Rich couldn't make it. He had, he had something going on, but he ended up flying up there to meet us. But we drove, we drove, uh, let's see, about seven hours, about, about six hours to Medford, stayed overnight, then took the next five hour drive up to Canby to meet the, uh, to meet the owners and Patrick, cause Patrick was there. And, um, and when we rolled up, I didn't tell Ron what car we were buying. Oh, get out of here. And I go, Ron, um, he goes, Lloyd, what kind of car is it? What kind of car is it? All the way up, what kind of car is it? I said, Ron, I can't tell you. I'm going to surprise <laughs> you. When you see it, you're going to tell me what you think. And Ron's the guy that deserves to be treated that way. <laughs> <laughs> he's a, he's he's a, a, good, he's a good guy. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> so then we roll up and he's like, wow. He couldn't believe it. He goes, that's that's a Dan and our coupe. That's like your convertible, but a coupe. I said, yes, Ron, it's the only one known in the world. And, and he was in shock. I mean, we couldn't believe it. And, and I said, and I said, Ron, the reason I don't want to tell you is because I know how people can be. They can change their minds. You never know. I mean, Bill, I don't know if you've been involved in that where you go to buy a car, you make a deal. And when you get there, the guy goes, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to keep it. Or he goes, I sold it to this other guy because he offered me $5,000, whatever. Right. You just right. don't know. And so I didn't want to jinx myself because I'm superstitious sometimes like that. And I'm like, until you get it, you don't have it. So, <laughs> right. So I told Ron, I said, you know, I'm very, I, I rarely admit these type of things, but I'm like, you know, Ron, I'm actually nervous about this one. I said, you know, if you lose an oval, so what? You lose a split, you can get another one. You lose right. a den and out the poop, you may never get it again. So, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be nervous about it. So, uh, and that's part of the thrill, right? Can't sleep, driving, you know, just million thoughts going through your mind. And it's like, we didn't go up with a trailer because I'm like, well, I'm not going to bring a trailer because what if I don't get the car? Then don't be presumptuous. Do? <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, when I get the, when I get the car, I'm going to buy a trailer right then and there. We'll tow it back. And so met, met the, um, you know, met the Roberts. They were fantastic. Again, they were fantastic people. And, uh, and, and met with uh, two of their sons, uh, who were also great people. And, um, they, uh, we, we, I basically, we sat in their living room. We talked about the whole transaction, we, we, we really hit it off well. I mean, we just had great conversations, learned a lot about them, and, and they learned a lot about me and my collecting. And they were so happy that the car was going to stay in the United States, that it was going to go to somebody that would appreciate the car for what it was, and that it was going to be in hands where, you know, I told them that I would not fully strip this car and fully restore it because I felt, you know, at the time of the car, when we looked at the car, we're like, this car is in a condition to be preserved. It should not be fully restored. Right. Because once I always feel a car is only in, in say that type of state once you can restore any car at any time, but you lose the history, the story, the originality, everything of that car. So there was a moment where I thought I would do it, but after consulting with some friends and looking at condition, you know, we all realized it would have been a big mistake to do that. Now, when you first see the car, so the, here's the big question. So, and, and and the day that you debuted the car, because I'm so inquisitive on crap like this, I cornered the previous owners and I had like a 15 minute conversation because here, here's the thing I couldn't figure out, not couldn't figure out, but I was trying to understand. And I, and I'd said to him, I said, how did you guys find out what the car, like what kind of car it is? Because up until somebody said, excuse me, you've got a Mickey Mantle rookie card. You know what I mean? It was just yes. a card on the floor that everybody stepped on and whatever. And it was like, it was just this thing. 
And I, and so I, I actually interviewed the owners, you know, just like wanting for my personal knowledge and satisfaction. I I thought to myself, well, so what was, and, and if you're okay with it, I'll share my conversation with them a little bit in regards to some of the history in the car, because I said, well, you know, cause to me, I'm thinking for you guys 30 days ago or, you know, six months ago, this was just like, ah, let's get this old bucket of bolts, convertible thing sold that's sitting in the barn. And when I talked to the owners, I said, so how did this all come to come to be? And they said, oh, you know, and then they told me the history on the car, like, oh yeah, our kids all drove it to high school. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, what? Cause the dad bought the car and then I was talking to the, to the, to the wife mostly. And she said, yeah, well we, you know, my husband bought it. I think he bought it, you know, it was like a sports car to have. And then the kids started driving it and, and the kids drove it to school and they blew the engine up or so, something had happened. And, and it was one of the things like it broke down and then they just pushed it in the barn and parked it. That's, that's correct. Actually, the reason that they actually ended up, they stopped driving it was uh, they were they lived in kind of a rural area. They lived on a, they had a farm and they mm-hmm. had horses and um, so that's how the barn story goes. And uh, and um, what had happened was they were driving the car and one day it has suicide doors and these cars are known for to have body flex. So doors, you know, if it hits a bump the right way, these doors will just open. Uh-huh. I mean, even on heavy any these coach builds a lot of times they had flex. So body flex. So you would you know cars doors would just open. And what happened was they were driving the car, and all of a sudden the door flew open. And I, I'm not sure if one of the kids fell out or something, but they were slow. And they set that point to go, this car is way too dangerous for to be driving anymore. Park the car. And uh, and you're right, that's how it got into the barn and stayed there from 1972 till when when we purchased the when I purchased the car. Yeah, and it's and, and it's just it, and for me it was just so so crazy that. You know, I think if I remember correctly, I think they, I think they said they bought it for like four thousand bucks or something back in the day, and I thought, well, what, what got you guys? Because usually those cars just sit until someone finds them, and they somehow, um, they were just like, well, let's get it running and get it sold or something. Might as well just get get it. I mean, what was their reasoning for selling it? Because obviously they didn't. You know, the I think they found out from my understanding talking talking to the owner they had found out what it was through, I think it was like the daughter, one of their daughters is married to a Porsche mechanic. So the, the, again, I think it was the research they had done. My understanding was it was through the grandson's girlfriend's father mm-hmm. who had done the research on the car. Um, and that's how they found out what it was worth. And, um, uh, so, um, yeah, re- the reason they were selling it was because, you know, they, they were retiring and they, you know, this car had been sitting in the barn forever. And when they'd done research and they found out what it was and what it was worth. And, you know, they had contacted that first party and that person had kind of indicated certain value levels for the car. And, um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's, um, so they started realizing that they had quite a, you know, quite a valuable car, valuable and rare car. Right. And, but they, but they knew that they were, they were at the point where, you know, the, the sons weren't going to do anything with it. And, you know, they had their own lives and it just, you know, the parents had just made their own decisions. I mean, they're, these are strong, these are people that make their own decisions. And, and although they consult their family, ultimately, you know, it was their decision that this is the direction they were going to go. And they, they felt that it needed to go somewhere where people could, could enjoy the car for what it was. And they were going to put the time and, and resources into it to bring it back out and share it. Now, now throughout this time, did they leave the car? Cause obviously all of us love to see the car 
in its original barn find state, like with rafters leaning over it and whatever the case was, were they, was this car, when you showed up to see it, to finally pick the car up, was it tires aired up sitting there kind of, kind of cleaned off and, and, uh, ready for the new buyer or was it still in a state of, of, uh, hibernation? (laughs) <laughs> it, the the sons had already pulled it out of the barn and cleaned it up but no it, by no means was this car ready to go i mean anywhere i mean the tires were off luckily the original a brakes were all Porsche a brakes were still on that was fantastic i mean it was really very very much original unfortunately the porsche rims the 16 inch porsche rims were gone the porsche engine was gone because like you said they they blew it up and they had to they had to change it out for the, uh, another engine but um the uh yeah no it was uh, it was on a trailer in fact we had to take it off the trailer to put it on our trailer we had to bring uh i remember we had to bring um rollers to roll the car because it, it wouldn't it wouldn't roll it one tire was off and uh one wheel was off so no but it had been i would say it had been tidied up would i say it had been cleaned up no all the original parts were in the car uh believe i still have some pictures of that of when we went to get the car but it it, it had already been pulled out of the bar in fact it was sitting in their driveway uh, when I, when I pulled up, uh, when I, when we finally arrived at their place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with, with this car, when you say the parts were inside it, did somebody start disassembling the car for like a backyard restoration type thing or, or what state of disassembly was it in just wheels and tires off and engine out? Yeah. In fact, there was no engine in the car. Um, and, uh, and, um, there was a block that came with it, but it was really beat up. I mean, I don't even, I think I still even have it. I, I think it's a, might've been a 40 horse, but we don't, we don't know who took it out when it was taken out. That wasn't, you know, mentioned to us, but no, it wasn't really in a state where, you know, you, you really had to just take it and go. Um, I think there's some pictures on the internet showing it sitting on their trailer. And, and for sure, I'm going to get some from you so I can post on the blog that, sure. that companions the the podcast so that people are able to follow along by going to letstalkdubs.com blog and take a look at you know the episode that this will be on and, and follow along with the pictures because that definitely rounds out the story. But not not to get away from the 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 cool fine part of the story. But what are the or because it's such a unique car. This was a special order car, if I'm not mistaken, right? It was a special order car, and because each of the five were so different, the features of this and this car has been actually fairly well documented. I mean, in terms of like the pictures and the known, perhaps purchaser of the car where it was sold, um, and like I said, some of the features that were on this car were very unique to this car. So we already knew which car, which coupe this was as soon as we saw it. As soon as we saw the features, we knew exactly which coupe this was. So that was really cool because sometimes you can't identify, you know, there's not enough pictures to know which car it was. So um, and uh, so we were very fortunate to to be able to know that right right off the bat. And the the original purchaser was like a, a tobacco uh, a, a tobacco businessman, right? Correct. It was a tobacco dealer out of and uh, he purchased it out of Wiesbaden, Germany. A special ordered it through the dealer, the Volkswagen dealership there, uh, with the Porsche drivetrain. Uh, he wanted a sportier car, and if you know anything about history back in that period, if you sold tobacco, or you were a tobacco dealer, you were fairly you were fairly well off, and uh, so he could afford something like this. I mean, he could he could easily have afforded this car back in that. It was an expensive car even for that period, but he could afford it. 
And interestingly enough, you said that they, these were offered. So obviously for DNS to try to kick things to the next level, they wanted VW to offer it as something that they could distribute to their people if somebody wanted something. It's one of those things like, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm feeling a bug. They might be a little too cheap for me. And they go, well, sir, we also have a, a custom option if you'd like to order a few of these coach belts. And then they, well, they like roll out the brochure on you and then – you know, if you're the guy with a few bucks, it's like it's like the guy that walks in the dealership today and get and walks in and gets the showroom centerpiece that's got every bell and whistle and everything on it. And this guy basically checks every box because for the most part, the majority of these cars, if not all that I know of at least, they all have VW drivetrains, right? Yeah, there are definitely a few that have uh, that came with Porsche drivetrains. I believe there's like two more that are known to have come with Porsche drivetrains and um uh, so that's known, but yeah, the majority of them did come with VW drivetrains. And this, the, so it comes with uh, what the a 1600 uh, 356 engine or what? Correct. Yeah, two piece 1600 uh, from uh, from 54. The the, the 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 coupe is a 54. Now it could have been made in 55. We just don't know because again, there's just no records mm-hmm. of it. DNS doesn't have any records of it, and uh, but it, it, it was a 54 chassis, so we know. At minimum, it was it was built in fifty, at least at minimum in fifty four. And other than the brakes, so the fr- is the front beam a beetle beam? It's a beetle beam, but it's been reinforced. It's got some kind of custom. Uh, I'm not sure how to word it, but it's just kind of some kind of brace that really strengthens it because if it's going that fast, that front beam has to be more stable, and so they uh, so they somehow constructed a custom one-off i've never seen another one like it uh that would um like a bulkhead being tighter yeah much tighter to the to the uh to the body and the or three, much tighter to the chassis Sorry. and the, the 356 brakes just go right onto the beetle the beetle spindle or is it a three correct. yeah correct yeah yeah so it's got 356 brakes 356 trans and motor now that trans is a four speed or five it's a four speed or five speed four, so we don't know what the original transmission was we did try to put a, a you know a, an early porsche transmission in, and it won't fit so we think it was a beetle transmission with a porsche engine oh really yeah because we we tried to install two of them and, and it just does it sits up at an angle and the engine would sit at an angle and that just would not be how it would sit in the engine bay. So we and a Volkswagen engine fit, uh, transmission fits perfectly. So we believe it was a Volkswagen trans. It, it could have been modified, but we don't know because the original transmission wasn't with the car either. And uh, as far as other parts in the car that are three fifty six, and what's 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 Beetle? What's three fifty six? So the only other, there's only two other items on there. Well, there's actually three. There was a a very early Vigal, I might be pronouncing it right, tachometer dated 1951, which had to make it one of the earliest tacks for Porsche. So blackface Vigal tack. And then uh, it had beehive taillights. It also had, uh, let me think, there's a third. Oh, the door handles are Porsche, early Porsche. That's how we know it was early Porsche as well because it was early. And again, it could be whatever was on the shelf at the time. But they would have to have modified the doors to accept Porsche handles, right? Because the majority of them were VW sickle handles. So, so this guy was—I mean, this guy wanted like every option you could get with the thing. That any any understanding why he ordered a coupe versus a convertible? 
you know, for whatever reason, he, he, no one knows. And it just, perhaps he, he just said, that's what I want. And he, he got it. I mean, we don't know much about his, the motive behind it, uh, you know, and, um, and so, or why he ordered it that way, but for whatever reason, that's what he wanted. <laughs> Has there been so, any, any research to try to track down this guy's family or any of that kind of stuff? I mean, it's probably a long shot. Like it, everybody's like, why do you care about a used car? He like a car he bought in 54. You know what I mean? Like, right. But that I, I want, I mean, listen, when you're, when you're doing this kind of stuff and getting that research, you're trying to figure out because you know, you want to just know all the, all the intricacies because nothing's there, you know, right? which is so, part, part of the allure. Yeah. So I, so this part is, this is what makes this car so interesting. So many of the different stories that go behind it. So to how Jim and Madeline Roberts acquired the car was Jim was a serviceman and he was serving at a, at a, at a, I forgot where a base or maybe one of the uh, military installations somewhere up in the Pacific Northwest at the time. They were a young couple. Madeline wanted a Porsche. Jim could not afford it. So he, he had a friend who he was, you know, again, working near with and he had this car and he sold Jim and Madeline this car and it looked, it was, it was good enough for Madeline. Even though she wanted a Porsche, she was okay to settle for this because, you know, they didn't have the money. He was, he was in the military, so obviously he didn't have a lot of money. Right. And she was a teacher, and they were both teachers eventually, but he was he was in the military. And so he bought it from this other serviceman. That serviceman actually brought it over from Germany. He, we believe, and, and based on, because I had shared the story of the tobacco dealer with the Roberts, and they said, oh, that makes so much sense of what, she goes, when we met the wife, she was, she was, she had nice clothes. She was, she looked like she came from money. Um, she was German. She, she did not kind of was kind of a little snobbish a little bit, but it could have been just cause she, it could be misinterpreted for being shy. Right. Cause as Americans were more upfront, Europeans right. tend to be more reserved, you know? And so, and she says, you know, this could have been the daughter of the tobacco dealer and he gave it to them. She said, because when we when we talked to the, when I talked to them about the story, they said, wow, this this could have been their daughter. Wow. That's, this could have been a tobacco. So yeah. the serviceman he bought it from married the daughter of the tobacco guy? That is what we believe. We try to track down that serviceman. <laughs> we could not find him. So the other option was to go back to the dealership that sold it. And we know where it was sold. I have not. Shame on me. After 10 years gone back and done, done that. Yeah, I that... would say over the next two or three years, I will go back to the dealership and see if I can track it down. I did call the dealership. It is still in the same hands. The fourth generation now owns that dealership and runs the VW dealership, believe oh, it or wow. not. So they probably have the records of the sale of this car. So I did contact him. I spoke to somebody there. They said, you know, you would have to speak to this person. I never, shame on me. I never followed up. Got busy with work, got busy with life, had a child, you know, yeah. got more cars and just got into everything else. Shame on me. I will have to go back and do that in the next couple of years. Well, we'll do, we'll, we'll have to do, we'll have to do a follow up and just get some more history because the coolest part of this is that is, is the mystique and the mystery behind it and really understanding like, you know, and who knows what you'll find when you go go to that dealership and see what they have. They're like, oh yeah, well we've got this piece of paper from the original sales transaction. I mean, you you never know what you can find. Um, it, it's just, 
it's there's so much mystery out there of it. And the incredible thing is, you know, I, I'm doing this podcast with you about this car, which is like a a one of one, but yet a, a really significant car. And it, and it, and it's like, how do you place significance on the car that nobody knew existed? You know, exactly. I you know, it's it's kind of it, like you said, it's a one of one. It's you know, it's it's um, I, I don't know. I think it's just always it's always personal to the person that has it. Right. Yeah. It was a collector. And I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm in the, my, my, my business is selling to people who are collectors of trading cards. So, <laughs> you know, I understand that passion for me. It's, it's, it's one that, you know, I, I truly love the car. It's, it's kind of what it is. It's rare. It's, and because I love VWs and VW coach belts, you know, for me, it's, it's, there's no value. There's no anything for me. I mean, I've been offered to sell the car in the past and I, I've passed on the offer. I've been, but um, you know, when I go to sell it and there will come a day because I always feel anybody who has these cars, we're only caretakers till the next owner. Yeah, Really? That's all we really are. So for me, it's more important that it's not as much about the money, but when it goes, it has to go to a good home. I mean, uh, the one person that offered, offered me a substantial sum of money. I, I can say I, there was a moment where I had a moment to, I was tempted. <laughs> and, and then when I found out that he was going to strip it, restore it a hundred percent i said sorry I'm, I'm i've decided not to sell the car yeah i just feel again once you do that you'll lose everything of what it is what it's interesting i remember the first time that i met christian grunman and he was at the beetle barn and he was with my friend chris cox they happened to be in town together and uh and i got to spend a little bit of time with christian and he's in town and and it's so funny. This is the funniest story. So I'm thinking, well, I had my Type 34 Gia, which currently to this day holds the record for probably the most expensive, not that I'm bragging, but the most expensive one built. And I still didn't make my money back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember driving down there and meeting him and we're talking and I pull up in my Type 34 Gia, which is from a collector standpoint, it's completely over restored, way over the top. Nothing's correct, and it's all, but it's really cool for us street guys. And so I'm sitting there talking. I'm like, oh yeah, this Type 34 gear, yeah, it's pretty rare. Not realizing who I'm talking to, and he says, oh, is this Type 34? It's very nice. I have the convertible. I'm like, uh, uh, wh- what? <laughs> but we're, <laughs> but we're talking. I'm talking to Christian, and we start, and I'm like, what do you? what do you pay for the convertible? You know, I'm talking about like that, like, you know, they're prototypes and all this stuff. And he goes, he says, well, what is it worth? If it's the only one, what is it worth? You know what I mean? And so, and the interesting thing is like, you can always place a, a dollar value on a car and, and it's worth what someone wants to get paid for it. Right. But to some mm-hmm. degree, sometimes things get to a point where there's really no value to it. Like it, it's more about having it. And I think the great thing about our hobby is, you can have this car that's really rare and super unique, and it's more about the people, the past, the history, the story of the car that you get to be part of it for a while. You know what I mean? Exactly. That's 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 so true. And and I think you know it's like a trading card. You have a trading card. It sits in a case. It's really rare. You have to tell people that you have it. It's there's there's a certain level of like okay, I own it. It's cool. It's rare, but it's an inanimate object that sits on the shelf. And the difference with these cars is, you can get in this car and take your little girl out for a drive and and go and 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 just you know take the thing cruising through the redwoods or whatever you want to do. I mean, you can actually 
have experiences with this that you can't have with it. It's not, it's not like you're going to a baseball game and set the baseball card next to you. You know what I mean? Like right. th- there's a, th- there's a more visceral experience I think with, with, and especially in the American culture, right? Because the American culture is so automotive. Be, the, the automobile and what it did to the United States, it made everything attainable to the average individual. And then it became like a lot of people say like, oh, you Americans, you just need to be like Japan or wherever and, and mass transit and all this stuff. And it's just like, it's just not going to work here in this country because it's part of all cult, of our culture of who we are as Americans is like our, our car culture, you know? Right. And, and the great thing about these cars, no matter how rare, and, and here's the, the best thing is I know you like to drive stuff. You know what I mean? Like you're now you're protective of your stuff, but I know there's still value to it. And being able to drive it and enjoy it, it, it's just, it's great to be able to bring that, bring it out, bring it to an event, and then be able to share the story with people. Yep, absolutely. I, um, I definitely like doing that. And uh, uh, for me, it's, uh, it's important that, um, you know, that again, it's, it's that people, you know, do, uh, you know, they get the, um, they can, uh, they can enjoy it and see it and I can tell the story behind it and they can, you know, so I think it's just kind of, it's, it, again, it's one of those things where you share it. I, unfortunately there hasn't been show, car shows in a while, but I was really fortunate to be invited to Amelia Island last year where the story of the car could be told. It was, you know, sitting next to another DNS, um, Mike Malamut's car and, uh, there, but it was, uh, you know, got a lot of attention and, uh, you know, many thanks goes to Scott Bose, who's a big coach built collector himself. And, you know, he invited, uh, he, he put together this class for Amelia Island and, um, you know, a lot, a lot of attention was brought to a lot of the coach builds that were there. The Grunmans were there. A lot of the important people that are in the, uh, coach built world were, were present just because of, you know, what it was. Patrick was there as well. Patrick Baptiste was there as well. So it was nice gathering of, uh, of, uh, of people to, uh, you know, to, to bring that out. And so now, it's, it's starting to get more well-known around the world, uh, you know, for what it is. And uh, so I, we were invited to another show in San Marino in Southern California, another coach built show uh, or section of another well-known show in San Marino. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately because of COVID-19, it was canceled. So, uh, you know, we'll have to wait till next year, but I'm, I'm looking forward to showing the car and, and, uh, you know, sharing the history of the car with, um, with people. And, and I'd, I'd love to see, um, you know, now your other DNS is still, it's still under construction. It is. And I, I would think it's going to be, um, it's going to be done pretty soon. Uh, I would, again, I, I believe we're 95% the way there. It's just a matter of trying to get, you know, it's, it's always, um, that first part of the journey while difficult is usually the easier part. It's that last five to 10% that really kills you. Right. That's where you put 90% of the work. I would say, even though 95% of the car is done. Yeah. And I, I would love to see a side-by-side comparison of the same car, two different models with extremely different options. Yeah. I, you know, and I think once, once it's done, it'll, it'll, you know, definitely sit side-by-side at, at the show at some point. And I Absolutely. think, I, I think it's, it, it's the perfect dichotomy of like the restoration world. Here's a fully restored car salvaged from near death. And here's one that was painstakingly preserved, you know, and, and the difference, because there's, there's two schools of thought in it. And there's the, 
the, the like you said, the guy that was going to buy it from you and restore it back to 100% factory condition. And then there's then there's your perspective, which it's like, this car has a story to tell right here. And right. it's bumps, bruises, and scrapes are all part of that story. So, man, I, I listen... I think it's I think it's rad. Well, you know, it's like, and I and I start and go, okay, well, you bought the one of one. What's next? You know what I mean? But it's like, yeah. I, and I think maybe it's such a unique car that it's, you know, wrapping up some of your other cars and being able to enjoy your collection is really maybe where you're at until the next thing pops up on the radar that starts stirring your inner gotta have it. You know what I mean? But I think this is this is a car that. I think for anybody would really quelch a lot of that. Oh, for sure. I think there's, you know, oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it really has. And it's every time I'm with it and I'm sitting in it, I have a big smile on my face and, you know, the world could be, you know, imploding around me and, and, and nothing would, you know, there'd be no care in the world for me when I'm sitting in it. It actually, in any of my VWs, but this one, especially just because of, you know, I really got to know the previous owners. I, I love DNSs. And so, you know, for me, it's just, it's just a great car. I mean, again, it, it, it's part of my emotion. Hobbies should be emotional. It should evoke those things in you. It, it, it really, um, and that's what I love about it. It's, it's, it's the other side of my life that I really enjoy a lot. Yeah. No, listen, and, and I love the fact that through our hobby of, VW collecting, customizing, preserving, and, and enjoying, we're able to, you know, be able to just share it with other people. And, and, and there's, there's, uh, there's just this unique opportunity that we have that stories continue to be told. History's not forgotten. And you think back to 1954, some tobacco guy, for all we know, could have just been like, eh, this is the nicest one. I'll get it. Cause he, he for all we know, he could have been just keeping up with the Joneses. You know I mean? Exactly. And, and he want maybe he wanted, to, he says, look, I want to be unique. Look, everyone's got a Porsche. You know, people can buy Porsches. People can buy VWs. Not everyone can have a DNS. Yeah. And, and who knows at that point, right? you got money. You, you can decide what you want to do with it. And, and uh, it's like anybody else, you know, who are we again? I always say, who are we to criticize what people love? That's, if yeah. that's what they love. They find, maybe I don't find it beautiful, but who am I to criticize if that's what they want? I, I support anybody that follows their passion and their hobby and, you know, they're not out there to, you know, force it on you. And they, they, they this is what I love. It's like, awesome. Go for it. Yeah, no, I th- listen, it's great. And this is why I wanted to get the story on the podcast because it's such a, it's such a cool story. Um, you know, our stories, our VW stories, although we may have different tastes, you know, they, they there's always overlap and, and no matter whether it's custom or stock or vintage, there's a feeling that like, like you alluded to a feeling that, that it invokes in you to see, from the first time you saw a baby window to a split window to a whatever that it, that it stirs something inside us that, that uh, maybe connects us to a time when we were young and, and something was impressionable on us, but it's, you you know, with with the beetle, it's the Volkswagen in and of itself. It's such a simple, basic means of transportation, but we can get so deep into it and really, enjoy the engineering the understanding the design the purpose built of it and then the uniqueness from each one whether it's you know from from a from an oval to a split to a zwitter to uh, you know a romech to a dns and and so much there's so there's so much in this hobby that just when you think we've gotten to the bottom 
there's even more to keep digging and keep finding up. So uh, anything else before we wrap up that you wanted, any special thanks you wanted to give anybody or anything else in the story that you wanted to touch on that we might not have touched on? You know, Bill, I, I just, I kind of want to really give a shout out to several people who have been really instrumental in, in kind of helping me with this, with this DNS. And I think that for me, if I, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, it would be, you know, not, not fitting to at least say, you know, their names. And so, you know, when I look back, I look at Patrick Baptiste, I look at Henry Marchena, I, uh, Rich Craig, Ron Huff. I mean, these are people that were really helpful. Dave Schneider, uh, these are people that were, uh, you know, Dave Harris. These are people that either contributed part, parts, time, effort into bringing this preservation back to life. And, and uh, you know, so I'm really grateful for these people because in the early days, they were the team. They were the people that I relied on to provide me all the guidance and, 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 uh, and be able to help put the car back together the way it should be. And, and also thanking the Roberts for believing in me as their next caretaker for their car. That was, it's very important. That's why I feel I owe it to the next person, the next person that owns it to be able to carry on that same tradition that what the Roberts looked at for me as well. No, that's awesome, man. Well, shoot, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and, you know, we'll, we have another podcast to do you and I coming up when another vehicle, um, (laughs) that you, that you may or may not be involved with comes to fruition. But, uh, We'll definitely do. We'll definitely do another one because I really enjoy, you know, the the digging and the hunt and the stories. That's my favorite part of the hobby is just the stories, you know. So, uh, Lloyd, I can't thank you enough for coming on, man. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me. Happy to to be on here. And hey, if something else comes up in the future. Happy to be on another show as well. Oh, for sure, man. For sure. Well, I pre- I appreciate everything, man. All right. Take care, Bill. Thank you so much. You got it. If you enjoyed that podcast, and I know you did because you're a real VW enthusiast, share it with a friend. We love when our listeners share this podcast with a friend and help our audience grow. If you want to support the podcast, go to letstalkdubs.com slash store and pick up some merch. Pick up some merch, you get a shout out on the podcast. A listener from down under, Tony Vavodin out of, looks like, Pimpama, Australia. That's where all the VW pimps are from. He purchased a sticker pocket. We appreciate your support. Next one's coming from Stateside, Temecula, California. Matt Waters supporting the podcast, picking up an old school retro shirt. So we appreciate you guys that are picking up some merch to support us here on the podcast. And if you can, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. The more reviews we get, the more we're likely to pop up in searches for people that are searching for good podcasts about air-cooled Volkswagens. We'll come right to the top and they'll be able to listen to yours truly, and hear these great stories that we get to share into each week. Now, I'm going to give away some of those VegasVolks.com NOS shirts that I found in my garage. They're XL only, and they're of Scott's convertible. So you guys know my homie Scott. His convertible is a featured car in Hot VWs, and we did some VegasVolks.com shirts back in the day, which I'll be adding all the content from VegasVolks.com that's in the archives to a separate tab on Let'sTalkDubs.com coming, in the next, coming up in the next little bit. So... In order to get a shirt, you guys got to tag letstalkdubs.com and share a link to the podcast on one of the Facebook groups you belong into. Share us, tag us, and make sure that you guys are getting known for sharing the podcast. And the first people that tag us and share us and call out and say they're looking for that XL 
classic NOS VegasVolks.com shirt, you guys will get those shirts. I got five shirts available, so five lucky listeners will get a free uh, VegasVolks.com NOS shirt from back in the day, free of charge, and some stickers from your boy at Let's Talk Dubs. That's for the fans. That's for the listeners. We appreciate you guys out there. Make sure you share the podcast. Let's grow this mother. Until next week, guys, I'll see you on the other side for another great podcast. Later.